0: Hello, I'm Ann Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We'll soon be announcing our 2023 festival program, so make sure you receive the announcement by signing up to our e-newsletters at swf.org.au forward slash subscribe. Until then, we hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: We're here. <laughs> I think we're good to go. <laughs> Hi, welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Sydney Writers Festival 2022, my name is Sana Kadar, I'm the host of All in the Mind on ABC Radio National, and I'm very excited to finally be getting underway with our panel today on how we make up our minds. Um, I want to start by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land, this land, and pay my respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. Okay. We have a seriously smart panel for you guys today. Uh, Starting in the middle, we've got Murren Irish, Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. Her research seeks to understand how the brain enables us to engage in complex acts of memory, imagination, and thinking, and how these processes are affected in dementia. Welcome, Murren. Furthest from me, we've got Damien Cave, Australia Bureau Chief for the New York Times and author of the book Into the Rip, How the Australian Way of Risk Made My Family Stronger, Happier and Less American. He was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in International Reporting in 2008 with a team in Baghdad covering the Iraq War. Welcome Damien. And finally, we've got Tim Dean right here to my left. Um, Tim is a senior philosopher at the Ethics Centre. He's a writer and author of How We Became Human and Why We Need to Change. It's a book about how our evolved moral minds are out of step with the modern world. He has a doctorate in philosophy from the University of New South Wales on evolution and morality. Welcome, Tim. (laughs) So, we are here to talk about how we make up our minds um, and this is something we're very much doing all of the time, isn't it? We're making decisions, we're making judgments, um, but I'm not sure that we're necessarily always aware that we're doing this. So I want to start by asking how often are we conscious of the fact that we're making up our minds on or about something? How often is it deliberative versus automatic? And Maren, I'll start with you in terms of what is the cognitive or what is the neuroscience? yet yeah, tell us.
2: Yeah, well, I think this obviously is going to vary depending on context. So in every given day, we're going through various automatic kind of decisions that we're not even consciously aware of. And so there's a reason why these are buried below your sort of conscious awareness, because if we were bombarded with having to explicitly think about, you know, the minutiae of everything that we're doing every day, we would never get anything done. So we've got sort of built into us a system that enables us to take, you know, quick and easy, sort of short and relatively sort of painless decisions, and to execute them automatically. And then for much more sort of big weighty decisions, obviously then we need to give that explicit attention and work through it and uh, simulate outcomes and possible consequences of our choices. So it's really hard to quantify Hmm. because it would vary obviously on an individual basis and on a daily basis, but there's a reason behind why we would give more gravitas to certain decisions versus just what toothpaste do I use, what clothes do I wear, and just going through the kind of daily chores.
1: What about if we're, you know, trying to decide whether to have That second scoop of ice cream, or like making a snap judgment on whether or not we like someone, is that emotional decision making?
2: So there's a whole literature behind both of those things. So I think in terms of the ice cream scenario, there's this whole um, idea of this like trade-offs between, you know, enjoying something that's satisfying now, but also maybe paying the consequences of that later. And it's like, do you take the immediate reward or do you delay and maybe go for a run and then say, oh, well, I'll have my ice cream tomorrow. And we're co- we're doing this all the time. It's like a push-pull between sort of our reward system and also then our conscious awareness going, oh, you know, you didn't fit into your jeans last week week, do you really want to have another soup of ice cream? <coughs> yeah. So it's it's pretty hard to, you know, to reconcile. And yeah. often we do make the impulsive choice and then we regret the decision yes. after. Oh, yes, we do. Um,
1: One of the ways, in terms of when it comes to automatic unconscious decision-making, one of the basic mechanisms for how we do this is, or why we do this, is through heuristics, so mental shortcuts, which is something both Tim and Damien speak about in your respective books. Um, Tim, could you maybe explain about what heuristics are, first of all, and why we evolved to have them?
3: Yeah, sure. Well, thinking is really laborious, and most of us don't want to do it when we can get away with it. So conscious thought, I mean, I'm kind of contradicting a lot of philosophers throughout the years, so I (laughs) apologise to them, but we are not these kind of rational beings who process information independently like computers, being aware of the information that we're processing. If we even tried to do that, if we even tried to think carefully and consciously about everything that we did, it'd be exhausting. You Mm. wouldn't get through like, you know, 15 minutes of the day. So we have a lot of shortcuts that'll enable us to kind of take in a bit of information, process it um, unconsciously and just make a very quick decision. And that's effectively a heuristic. It's like a rule of thumb. But yeah. like a lot of rules of thumb, it's kind of a bit coarse. It's not always precise. It's kind of got rough conditions of when it's going to work and there are often biases in it, so you might be biased without even realizing towards, you know, going in one direction towards another. But because it's a heuristic, it's already kind of beneath the surface. Mm. And so we're not even really aware of it. I mean, you're probably aware of, like, uh, Daniel Kahneman's work um, Tversky with thinking fast and slow. The fast thinking, which is the majority of our thinking, is these kinds of heuristics. And they're just efficient, and usually, they usually get you through the day, but they can be error-prone as well.
1: Yeah, tell me about the errors. When can they lead to pitfalls or lead us astray?
3: Well, like, I mean, like any rule of thumb, it's, it's not going to work in every situation. Mm-hmm. There's not going to be a lot of nuance. And like, so what I'm really interested in is where evolution has also played a role in shaping these heuristics. So from our evolutionary past, there were some things and some behaviors that were really good to help us. Evolution only really cares about us. Um, it doesn't even really care about us surviving. Evolution just kind of wants you dead all it wants is for you to leave a, a kind of a genetic mm. offspring so that they can kind of leave more genetic offsprings. So if you could figure out some heuristics to leave more genetic offspring, hey, that's great. Get selected for. So one of the examples I use in my book is like our sweet tooth mm. is when you when our ancestors tasted sweetness that indicated the presence of sugars, those sugars represented energy. That energy enabled that you know that uh, primate, to fuel itself through its day. So if it had a choice between a food that was um, not sweet and one that was sweet, um, it started to get a a heuristic that encouraged the sweet-eating food. That's our sweet tooth now. We get pleasure from that, reinforces that behaviour, encourages that that, that chimp to climb the tree and get to the sweetest fruit. But we carry that heuristic with Mm -hmm. us today to to preference certain pleasurable flavours compared to others. Which is not so good when you don't have to work to mm-hmm. get the sweet foods. When you're living in a, an environment surrounded by donuts, uh, it can, that heuristic can backfire or and end cream. up, it, or ice cream <laughs> or whatever your your thing is, chocolate for me. It used that sweet tooth used to be a heuristic that aided our health and survival, and now that very same heuristic in a different environment is potentially harmful to our health.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're not. All bad though these heuristics. You you write about the bias bias, Damien. What's what's that?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, it's interesting. Food always comes up when we talk about biases. I don't know why researchers <laughs> are so obsessed with that, but but I do think some of the evolutionary things that, in some ways, it's not necessarily good or bad. It's just distinct. So one of the things that I explore a bunch in my book is fear and risk. Right? What are we afraid of? And. The evolutionary biology will tell us, for example, we're more afraid of a plane crash than heart disease. There were surveys done of all these different risks and all these different dangers and causes of death, and people overvalued tornadoes, anything that killed lots of people for that same evolutionary biology reason because we don't wanna die with lots of people because the group is what we need to survive, right? So is that bad or good? Probably neither, but it's just a bias that we need to understand as we look at the things that we're afraid of. But the idea of bias-bias is that, um, there's this guy, Gerd Gigerenzer, who's a psychologist in Germany, and he was really concerned about this idea that we've become so obsessed with our own irrationality Mm. that sometimes we maybe overplay or assume that it's bias when it might just be not enough information. There might be other problems that are causing us to make bad decisions. And he also argues that some of these rules of thumb actually work really well for us. So if you're, you know, whether you're playing cricket or baseball as an American, um, there's, there's a rule of thumb that lets you know how to catch the ball and basically figure out the trajectory of the ball as you're running under it. And your mind just does that automatically. And that's the same kind of bias that allows an airline pilot to know when how to look at the horizon and know how much time that person has in order to land. And that's something that can be built through training. So some of it is sort of automatic that can be positive for us, but some of it can also be sort of built. Um, biases are not the, end all, the be all, end all, it's not fate.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of how we weigh up something like risk though, more specifically, which your book grapples with, um, Certain biases can play a role in how we get that wrong as well. Um, I'm thinking specifically of the low-risk white male effect that you write about, can you tell us <laughs> yeah. about
4: that? So, so one of the things when we talk about unconscious bias, especially as it relates to race and identity, it, it often focuses on what we perceive to be as, as threats that maybe aren't threats. It's that thing that feels like other, whether it's a different person from an outsider perspective or someone who's dressed different or something like that or someone of, of color, if you're someone who's not, who, growing up in that in a community like that. So we, we talk a lot about that, especially in States about how that can skew our perceptions in ways that are really negative. But there's also a way in which some people in some studies have been found to underestimate actual threats. And so this is something that I write about in the book in relation to the Christchurch attacks where they did a survey uh, across a whole bunch of demographics to try and understand if people's sense of risk and threat was the same. And what they found was that for the most part it actually is the same based on demographics, but there was this weird little subset of people, low risk white males, who tended to trust that the world was gonna work out fine for them. And they tended to be very individualistic, they tended to be of higher wealth and income, and they actually skewed the results because they underestimated the risks and, and what I sort of argue in the book is that's kind of what happened with the Christchurch shooter is that because society and because law enforcement tended to be overpopulated probably with a whole bunch of low-risk white males, there are threats that you miss. And so sometimes biases can be in favor of being too scared when we shouldn't be, mm. but sometimes they can also be in, in, in favor of being too confident and secure when we shouldn't be.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk a bit more about race and how we sort of make up our minds on race for a moment. Um, because it can feel like many of us make up our minds uh, in a not very helpful way, sometimes very harmful way, but part of the problem that you write about, Tim, is that you know, we, have a very, we have an evolutionary inclination to feel suspicion or discomfort um, when we meet people who aren't like us, is that correct?
3: Yeah, we've, like, when we look at some of the uh, heuristics and biases that are innate, they're not fixed, they're plastic. So they're they're open to the kinds of experiences that we have, and they kind of calibrate our minds to expect a certain kind of world. And so if we're raised in a very homogeneous environment, if we're raised around people who all look and sound the same, from a very young age, we start to kind of expect that that's what the world is going to look like. And then what happens is we start to feel greater comfort around people who fit that mould, and we get a little bit more uncertainty, a mm. bit more suspicion. It's not necessarily fear, it's, it's maybe only incremental, and there's a huge amount of ver- variation between individuals, but there's this little bit of kind of less openness and warmth and acceptance towards those who look other. And this happens really, really young. Like, one of the, one of the interesting things is that um, we often talk about racism as something that uh, kids don't have, and we must learn it mm. somehow. We're not born racist. And it's true we're not born racist, but it turns out that six-year-olds are the most racist of us all. Like, six-year-olds are really overtly racist. They will verbalise suspicion. They'll verbalise negative attitudes towards mm. people who look uh, different and sound different to themselves. That effect diminishes in teenage years and then gets and diminishes even further by the time you get to your early 20s. and It kind of plateaus for the rest mm. of your life. Um, What's interesting, though, is your implicit bias, your unconscious bias, which speaks to that kind of... ..that sensitive window when you're maybe two, three, four years old, that stays with you. So even though you might not... People who are older may not make as overt racist statements or Mm -hmm. behaviours, they can still feel uncomfortable around people who do not look and sound the same as them. And I might just want to add here, it's not about race. Right, there are no human races. There's there's only humanity. There are slight biological variations uh, between populations that uh, that have evolved in different areas of the world in terms of you know local environments, altitude. Uh, you know, sun, but they're so trivial. There's so much more variation within those populations genetically than there is between those populations. If you tried to divide the human, um, the, the whole human population into discrete units by genetics, um, it's arbitrary. You could make one, two, three, four, twelve, fifteen 12, 15 races. It's really arbitrary. So I actually prefer to use the term racialized, mm. which speaks to our tendency to project differences upon different kinds of groups but that racialization, which is a much more kind of cultural thing mm-hmm. um, that is not a biological kind of thing because evolution had no race to latch onto to identify what it's identifying is this kind of tribal difference based upon that early little window and when that we then kind of tend to culturally at the moment interpret that as race.
1: Yeah Maren I'm wondering if you can weigh in in terms of what processes are going on in the brain when we're making decisions or assumptions about in groups versus out groups yes
2: yeah, so this is a huge again area of like social psychology where we're trying to understand what it is you know are they snap decisions or are they more elaborate based and it seems that it's it's very much speaks to what tim is describing that we're making these um, again heuristics on what we know what's familiar what sort of rolls along with our schemas and our scripts as to how we think life should be and the principles that should govern the way others act. And so if there's a mismatch between what your sort of script or your schema is for how things should go, you will instantly feel sort of incongruent with whatever has caused that mismatch. And if that is from a different racial group or you know people of different sexuality, maybe it's all different types of you know, human characteristics can trigger these feelings of an incongruency, then it's really up to the individual to try and do something about resolving that, um, that feeling of dissonance between what they're comfortable and used to and whether they decide to attribute you know problems or you know you know stumbling blocks externally or internally, well, as humans, we have another heuristic where we tend to attribute our feelings of discomfort to external sources, but we tend to attribute our feelings of success and positivity to ourselves. And it's called like (laughs) this fundamental attribution error. And it's something we do sort of automatically as well. So if you do well on a test, you studied really hard, but if, you know, someone did better on a test, oh, they had an advantage, or you try and pull them down. Mm -hmm. So all of these little things are sort of coalescing, I think, to because we're operating with all of these different streams of information coming in, and because it's very much below conscious awareness, it's automatic to save us that computational power for better things. I think a lot of these processes, we don't even realize we're Mm. doing them. And we'll have these knee-jerk reactions to things that we don't even know why. But buried deep down, there are reasons for that.
1: So how can we overcome this then? If we have this evolutionary inclination to feel suspicion to outsiders. If we have all these heuristics playing a role, how can we overcome this? Because we've seen time and again, you know, on the extreme end, the consequences of racism. You know, most recently, tragically, in Buffalo, New York, um, where a white gunman sought out a black neighborhood to go and kill black people, which he did. So how can we combat this? How can we change our brains and our minds?
2: I think I'd get a Nobel if I had the energy. that <laughs> um, I think, I mean, one of the ways is, and I think Tim discusses this in his book, is actually bringing to your awareness these implicit biases that we hold. And there are different ways of testing for what your sort of proclivity towards a certain bias is. Um, I took the implicit association test and found that I actually have a really strong bias towards older people. Because I work in dementia and age, mm. aging research, I'm like more likely to favorably side with people who are older than actually younger. So I have to always watch that I'm not being mean to my kids and actually being really nice <laughs> to older ah. people. So I think it's like bringing to awareness the, those unconscious biases and paying attention to where we might naturally default to. But there is a caveat to that in that there have been lots of, um, you know, organizational psychology courses where they're trying to get people to recognize their biases. And then once people take these tests, they say, oh, well, I know what my bias is. I don't have to do anything about it. So that's only one part of the process that you need to, it's like an active sort of work to break down your schemas and understand that you have to let all these different streams of information Mm. in and update your schema as you go. Mm takes a lot I mean, of time.
4: I wonder, too, if sometimes it's, it's simpler than that, too. I mean, I keep thinking of some of the psychologists who I, who I talked to for my book about risk, and when I say, like, well, how do you deal with this? How do you, you confront this? And they're like, well, don't forget that if you're afraid of spiders, what do you do? You expose yourself to spiders, right? And so sometimes getting out of our heads and out of that sort of sense of just knowing what our bias is is actually what we need to do. We need to change our behaviors. and you know, exposure is an important part of it. I, I read, read a lot about immigration over the course of my career and there's this great sociologist at Stanford who talks about when a community goes from being strangers to neighbors and it takes a period of time, but eventually that sort of the mortar of human interaction changes the construction of a community. And so sometimes it's actually, I feel like it's actually not our minds that we need to change, mm. it's the way we live that needs to change.
1: Mm, that's really interesting. And, and just coming back to Christchurch, um, you, you write about that covering that event um, in your book really movingly. Can you talk a bit more about the impact that had on you and sort of your thinkings around risk? Like, had you even heard of the low risk Low male. Yeah, no. What am I trying to say? Low <laughs> risk white male phenomenon yeah, before
4: then. No, not really. I mean, I mean, for me, I sort of started this whole process of writing about about risk, thinking I think like a lot of people who are not sort of experts in this that it's kind of ingrained that mm. you're either a risk taker or you're not. And so, you know, I'd covered wars and I thought I sort of understood risk, and uh, and then coming to Australia sort of changed my thinking in a whole bunch of different ways because Australians mm-hmm. tolerate certain risks that I don't, like spiders and snakes and the <laughs> ocean, and that's what I read about, but. Christchurch for me was really at that point I was deep into thinking about risk and trying to figure out well what happens when there's a risk that we never saw coming when you know there's a tragedy that happens where you're not about how you manage risk but about something that happens to you that betrays your sense of trust in humanity and so that's sort of what I went in there trying to understand and you know what I found was the way that people recover from that is not so different from the way that humans get better at risk, whether you're a doctor or you know, an emergency room or a soldier. And it's by putting yourself out there. And you know, I spent more than a year tracking a family who had been one of the victims um, of the attack. And I focused on this one family because the father had made this really brave act of saving his two-year-old son. When the shooter came into the mosque, he dove over his son. And I kind of wanted to understand what was, what was that decision and what I ended up kind of finding was that while that decision was instinctual, um, the much harder decision for them as they recovered was to put themselves back out there and trust their community. The first time I visited their house, all their shades were down. They were in a really dark place, even though they had survived. And over the course of the time that I got to know them and spent a lot of time with them, they managed to, to change their way of thinking and change their minds about the world around them. And what you find is that trauma and all these horrible things that happen to us you know, they often don't break us. And and so what Christchurch, I think, sort of taught me was that you know, as, as horrible and, and biased and weak as we are as humanity, you know, when we choose to push ourselves back out there, we often find that we're stronger than we think we are. Mm. And sometimes the thing that holds us back is being stuck in our heads. Sometimes you gotta get back out. So yeah. that was sort of what Christchurch told me.
1: How is that family now, do you know?
4: Yeah, they're good. I still, I still talk to them, we stay in touch. Um, you know, it's a long journey for a lot of these folks. Yeah. And you know, I know this from covering wars and having seen this from my friends too, but, but at some point, there 's a strength that comes from it, and you know the, the wife in this case, she was American, her husband was Indonesian, and there were new immigrants to, to New Zealand when this all happened, and um, you know she had this real moment of closure at the sentencing where She had been hiding, I think, within the community for a long time, and she actually decided to speak in court and talk about her experience. And for her, that changed a lot, and that was sort of a real turning point for her. Mm,
1: Wow. All right, I want to shift to talking uh, about social media and how it messes with our thinking. Spoiler alert, lots of ways. Um, (laughs) And it's a topic that's relevant to racism, but I want to talk about it more broadly. Um, And both of you, Tim and Damien, uh, talk about the effects of social media in your books. Um, Tim, could you explain a little bit about how social media and the internet have collided with the way our brains have been built to work through evolution. Because why is everything such a mess right now, it feels like, with, you know, social media?
3: Yeah, look, I think if you wanted to create a platform, a communications platform that was built for bad faith discourse, <laughs> you could not do better than to build Twitter. <laughs> like, it's, it's almost perfect, yeah. to, because you're, if you think about you know, 140, 280 characters or whatever, that's only enough for a conclusion, it's not enough for your argument, it's not enough for the reasons to support things. Um, you, you require people to employ an enormous amount of charity to be able to look at what's unsaid around what, what you're saying. I mean, the principle of charity is a fundamental part of, of philosophy and just good discourse, where it is impossible to say everything that you need to say, including all of the reasons and qualifications and all the evidence whenever you make a statement. Otherwise, I'd be sitting here talking for hours and hours for, to back up every sentence that I'm saying, and that's not a good festival. So you need to employ charity. You need to fill the gaps with, in, in what you're hearing with the best possible arguments that they could could put forward, not the worst. And Twitter doesn't really even... It demands so much charity that it's really hard for Mm. us to to kind of put that through. So there's the starting point. The second thing is all of the reward mechanisms in in not just Twitter but other kinds of social media, they're based around engagement, not quality. So if you post... And there's a lot of evidence to show that if you post a tweet uh, with a lot of emotive and moralised language, like, I'm outraged, I'm, disgust, I'm disgusted, I'm furious, you'll get more uh, likes, you'll get more shares and more, you know, retweets than you will if you post a, a, a more kind of considered tweet. So the reward mechanisms, uh, we, we go in there and you punch in something and it's, it's well thought through and it's considered <laughs> and it's balanced and it just goes into the void. You punch in something that's really, you know, angry and outraged and bam, it gets feedback, and you think, oh, well, that's what I should be doing. So it's, it's tapping into that. And why is it tapping into that? It's because one of the other heuristics that we have evolved is this propensity for outrage. Mm. And outrage is a really important moral emotion. We might not think about it as a moral emotion, but that's exactly what it is. Because outrage, what is outrage, right? Outrage is, is not just when we get angry. We get angry at all sorts of things, like, you know, you bang your thumb when you're hammering, you get angry at the, whatever. It's You get angry at an injustice, at a harm. And what's really interesting about our species, like some primates experience anger and outrage, but we are the only species that gets angry when someone we don't know and have no relationship with and no connection to does something bad to someone else we don't know and have no relationship to. We can just be independent onlookers, we are not affected by this at all, and we can get really pissed off when something happens. And this was a really important device uh, for our ancestors to regulate behaviour in small-scale society. When somebody was misbehaving in this this society, we may not be involved, but we witnessed it, we would get angry, or our ancestors would get angry. And then the other trick with that outrage does is it's contagious. When you get outraged, you don't just sit there and go, hmm, I'm outraged, you want to tell someone. (laughs) You want to go, did you see that? When you gossip and you talk about it and the outrage spreads and then they spread it and they spread it and that is also no accident because that creates a coalition, particularly if there's a bully doing something wrong. One-on-one with a bully, it's dangerous. But if you can spread outrage and gather a coalition, four, five, ten people, you can deal with that bully. And so that outrage is built into the way that we think. Now, drop that onto social media. We are exposed now to a world of outrageous acts. We get angry, we don't want to contain it, we want to share it. Social media is like, hey, right here. (laughs) You share it, you get the reward mechanisms, it's infectious, it drops onto other people, they share it, it spreads. What's lacking, unlike when it's face-to-face as it was in our ancestral past, is the strategic action, that coalition that can then do something about it. We are so removed from so many of the outrages that we see around the world, that we get angry, we spread it, but we're powerless, and so we have to find some way of doing something that makes us feel like we've got some closure. With the limited resources, we might try to cancel them, we might try to get them fired, we might try to dox them. They're all pretty weak. They're usually not treating the cause of the outrage. They're just punishment to try to knock them into into Mm -hmm. line. But social media is just the perfect storm that taps in to these incredibly powerful, ancient emotions and heuristics and then feeds these engagement reward mechanisms, which makes plenty of money for the social media companies, and we are left mad, mm. powerless, and just exhausted. I don't know about you, but I am a lot of the time. <laughs> so th- that's, that's the, the perfect storm of yeah. social media and outrage.
1: Yeah, are our brains just pretty much defenseless against this heady mix of outrage and novelty, Marin.
2: I'm... Well, I'm outraged at the suggestion (laughs) (laughs) that Twitter is all bad, because I actually really like Twitter. But anyway, um, you're right. Like, it is completely geared up to turn us all into, you know, rats or pigeons just pressing and looking for a reward. So even the whole way that the social media enterprise is constructed is playing along to our fundamental reward circuits in the brain. And so these are regions that are buried deep they're very evolutionary old structures in the striatum which is deep inside your brain and it has connections forward into your frontal lobes where you make decisions and so when something pleasurable happens to you this is the striatum will you know fire up and go oh yes dopamine starts to circulate and you start to to feel really good and so with social media it's interesting in that all of the concepts that Tim was saying about it, feeling negative and you want to do something, it is inherently rewarding, but possibly not in such a positive way. But still you're trying to find a way to sort of work and act on this very sort of primed evolutionary response to these highly engaging scenarios. And so when you go onto social media, It's full of pictures. It's full of constant updates. And it's very addictive. You will get notified when people see your tweet, when they read it, when they like it. Even that's rewarding. That's got another sort of feedback or reinforcement to your own actions. Then you can get emails telling you that X has responded to your tweet or someone else has sent you a message and you go back in. And it's all geared towards pulling you in and keeping you engaged. And so it's like this reinforcing cycle. And it's playing on those same brain circuits, not on like those implicated in um, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. Mm. It's the same brain region. And so we're primed to respond. It's like the ultimate drug because we're all on our computers all the time. And so you can see how people get lost into that void and they get really dependent on the sort of validation and gratification that Mm. they receive from those social arenas. It becomes like their outlet, particularly in the pandemic when actual social contact sort of you know, prohibited, this became the main mechanism by which people were getting rewarded.
1: Yeah, and in terms of the outrage and the reward and that whole circle that goes round and round, you, there's a really interesting case that you talk about in your book, Tim, about the Covington Catholic schoolboys who were um, videoed doing what looked like um, harassing a Native American man, or sort of intimidating a Native American man in Washington, DC. And a sort of portion of this video went online and it sparked a whole lot of outrage. Um, What does that example tell us about um, how we make up our minds online?
3: Yeah, look, I don't know if you remember the the footage, there's like this young boy kind of standing there with this smug smile on his face, and there's a Native American guy banging a drum. And it's a little close-up shot, and it really looks like he's being mocking of mm-hmm. this of this guy, and that got spread around mm-hmm. social media. Um, but when you look into the the bigger picture about like what had happened and transpired for like an hour or a half an hour leading up to that, and then what happened, you know, in the half an hour afterwards, you see this much more complex story with all these other agents and actors yelling and doing these different things, and and you see that what we saw was this tiny little microcosm, and and I. One, one American journalist said that it's like, a, it's like a Rorschach test, this image, for what you think is going on in America at the time. Because if you are, if you are more progressive, what you see is this like, white guy intimidating a Native American guy. And if you're uh, more conservative, you might be more defensive and say, well, hang on, this guy's not doing anything and it looks like the Native American guy's kind of goading him or something. It was an ambiguous image. And what we know about ambiguity is that we'll fill the gaps with our preconceptions and our assumptions. So it was a Rorschach test because it revealed our hidden assumptions about the way the world is and allowed us to interpret it in a way that fits the narrative that we have about the world. But then all this other stuff happens because some people start to say, oh, look, it's terrible, and others start to look at the background and say, actually, it's more nuanced than that. And then the people who think it's terrible are like, well, hang on, how can you say it's nuanced? Because it's, it's clearly wrong. And So the people get, they get punished for saying that it was, it was black and white, and then the people trying to say that it's not black and white get punished for saying it isn't black and white, and it just becomes this, this mess, this kind of morass of, of discourse. And it's, once you're in that deep, it's really hard to then kind of step out mm. and try to figure out what's going on and how to make sense of it. So we just see the world through these lenses, and I mean, as, as a philosopher, what I'm really interested in is how unconscious those lenses are and how all of our values and the narratives that we, we have to make sense of the world inform our decisions, but they're not visible to us. Yeah. And so, like we're talking about at the beginning, like these heuristics and they're beneath the surface. One of the key parts, and, and I, I feel contractually obligated to mention the, the name Socrates at least once whenever <laughs> I'm talking in public, the unexamined life is, is not worth living, is, is one of the things that he talked about. And it's what, what does that mean? It just means bringing this stuff to the surface. So when you do that, you at least have a fighting chance to decide whether these lenses that we're seeing the world through Are the right ones, are they accurate? Are they in accord with our other values? Are they the kinds of lens that are gonna enable us to make the world a better place, or are they just self-serving?
1: Yeah, Damien, do you remember that case as the sole American on the panel? What did you make of how it unfolded? You
4: know, I I think, I was thinking actually of our earlier conversation about the difference between decision-making that's sort of fast and slow, and I think the way media works, we're sort of encouraged to make those fast decisions first, and I think that was a real classic example of the reward system of our media ecosystem jumping to that conclusion, and then sort of evolving toward nuance, and then there was, I mean, as you sort of said, but in some ways, I think that's also a failure of something Tim said previously too about that helplessness. When, when we're so obsessed with language, when we're so obsessed with you know, interpretation and, and outrage and who's right and who's wrong, then you're kind of missing the opportunity to do what our you know, ancestors did, which was, yeah, get out and make a fire, or do something else that gets us beyond that form of conversation. And I was actually wondering, now I'm asking a question, sorry, I'm do a journalist, it. <laughs> can't help it. but I was wondering, like, for the reward system, is the reward system the same for a novel as it is for social media? Huh. Like, is there, or is that a different part of the brain? Because that's a reward, too.
2: Yeah, I think there's a difference in terms of the immediacy, though, right. of that. Rewards. So I guess the reading a novel is much more a slow-burning, ongoing, extended form of pleasure, whereas the rewards that we're talking about with social media, they're instant, and that's why it is so gratifying. It's like you get the hit instantly. Mm. So you don't need to wait around and see the... It's very much geared towards impulsivity, and that's right. like what you're saying, that you don't need to think about it. It's, it's immediate.
4: So maybe it's, that, it's getting over that impatience, right? Mm. So it's like changing the lens, slowing down, and then doing something, (laughs) like actually turning off the computer or whatever it might be. Yeah, but are we doing
1: long-term damage to how we think through social media? Like, is is social media changing how we make up our minds and how quickly we do so?
2: Oh, I think so, absolutely. And I think it's, like, I'm not an advocate for social media by any stretch. I don't have Facebook, Instagram, anything like that. I just use Twitter for academic to find papers. But, what's interesting is just how much misinformation is sort of promulgated through social media and how quickly people are to want to believe it and I think a lot of that came about again during the pandemic when maybe your usual networks were cut off and people were trying to make decisions about vaccination and you know whether to wear masks all of this kind of thing and trusting the trusted source may not necessarily be the scientific source or the objective data but friends and so like I had a friend contact me asking should she get vaccinated and saying that her friendship group was going to basically cut her out on social media if she did because they had read research, you know, by some discredited person about effects of vaccination. And so it's just interesting the the way in which we will, again, make decisions based on our reference group and maybe discount then possibly more plausible or objective sources of evidence because or for fear of falling out of the in-group. So I find that really sad that this was the pressure being put on this person, and she, didn't genu- she genuinely didn't know whether to side with her friendship group or go and get vaccinated. Wow. Which, yeah.
3: So, I mean, talking, that, that's a really interesting example of another bias that we have, which is we are social and communal creatures by nature. And we, in, in a lot of contexts, like, again, philosophers have wanted this to not be the case for a very long time... But truth is usually less important than relationships uh, in, in a lot of aspects of our lives. And, it's, and we know from a lot, there's a lot of evidence to show that if you drop people into a room full of um, actors who uh, all believe something that's kind of ridiculous and outrageous, it doesn't take long for the subject who's dropped into that space to start believing that as well, or at least expressing that. Mm. And once they express it to, to conform, to be a part of this group, Um, then they start to kind of find ways to justify that to themselves and they start to find ways to believe it. I mean, there are some other wild things about the way that we are so inherently social. Like, um, they've done an experiment where uh, they'll get a bunch of actors and one subject and they stand in a circle, the subject doesn't know the others are actors, and the experimenter will start throwing a ball to each person and that person throws the ball to the next person, they throw it around randomly but they've told the actors to never throw the ball to the subject. <laughs> and that feeling okay. of exclusion from a trivial act, after only like two or three minutes, wow. starts to become really, really intense. And that post will, the subject will become really agitated by the feeling of exclusion from an arbitrary act with a bunch of strangers. They've even repeated that experiment with um, Russian roulette like a fake Russian roulette, and the subject is like, give me a turn, you know? (laughs) Why aren't I getting a turn in this? But what that speaks to is that we are so fundamentally social, we so take cues from our trusted circle that we would rather bend our beliefs to to conform to them than to pursue the truth in defiance of them, which is one reason why... In philosophy, like, you get trained as a philosopher through years and years and years to start to push back against these social tendencies so that you can sit in a seminar and you can challenge someone charitably and respectfully um, in a way that you may have more difficult doing, more difficulty doing, like, over a dinner table or certainly in public or on social media. And this is a skill that Mm -hmm. takes, takes time. And this is one of those skills, which is why I will, in any public forum, I get an opportunity to say this, to teach philosophy in schools, to teach critical <laughs> thinking, teach argumentation, disagreement, and teach how to build good faith and, and good charitable discourse and uncomfortable conversations. It's a skill.
1: Yeah, all right. We, we've got 15 minutes left of today's session, so I'll just um, let you know that we'll open up the floor to questions. There's mics on either side if you want to start lining up. But uh, while we wait for people to gather with questions, I guess the it all sort of comes down to... How do we make a change? How do we change our minds if that's what we want to do? Given what we know about heuristics, how, you know, how susceptible our brains are to fear and stress and, and all the rest. Tim, I mean, you have a whole call to arms in your book. How do you feel like those of us listening can start to make a change in how we think and behave?
3: Look, there's a lot that we can do. And there's, I guess, to be quick, there are two dimensions. One is the personal, one is the environmental. So as individuals, um, it takes a bit of work. We can't be lazy. We need to be reflective. You need to understand what you believe and what what your values are. So I've got one exercise that I I recommend to people that I call three whys deep, um, W-H-Y, three whys deep. Uh, Take a big decision in your life, whether it's where you live, what you work, what what you're doing, uh, who you choose to spend your life with, whatever it is, and ask, why did I make that decision? Why did I conclude to do this? Take that answer and say, why is that important to me? Take that answer and say, why is that important to me? So you've asked why three times. And usually in the course of our, our day-to-day lives, we don't really go that deep. So if you take a moment and just, you know, sitting on the bus, put your phone away and think, why, 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 you start to get down to your core values. Like I, I chose this job for financial security. I like financial security because it means I can look after my family. I like to look after my family because they're the most important thing in my life. And I, when I've done this exercise before, I, one guy said exactly those things and he was like, oh my God. My family is the most important thing in my life, and my job means I never, never manage to see my family. So there's a contradiction between my values and my... Mm. Thing. So that's the individual. On the social, we are constantly responding to the cues in the world around us. Those cues are physical world, so build a space that, that you know, leave fruit, not Tim Tams on the kitchen table. But do that socially as well. Surround yourself with good people Create social capital, start to build trust, engage with your community. The best way to get over um, racism is to marry someone (laughs) of the different different racialized group. Now, you may not have an opportunity to marry, you know, so widely in your life to be able to experience that, but get into and engage with these different environments and, and that will start to have an influence on the way you behave as well.
1: Damien, you went on a pretty exhaustive uh, effort to change your thinking and behavior. What have you gleaned in terms of how to do it? Uh,
4: you know, I, I agree with Tim on almost all this. I mean, the thing that I would say and that I sort of learned was put yourself in an environment, if you want to change, put yourself in an environment to represent the values that you want to change towards, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it hurts. Uh, in my case, it hurt for many months and many <laughs> years, but, um, but I think that was one of the things that I, that I sort of underestimated, the importance of just putting yourself in an environment that forces you to change through the sort of friendly interaction of people who go from strangers to neighbours.
1: Yeah, all right, just before we get to questions, I'll get Maren to weigh in. And just, I should have mentioned previously, please do ask a question, no statements please, and and keep it brief if you can. Um, Maren, how can we change?
2: Yeah, I think, um, like I agree with everything that's been said, but also there's a huge scope for us to, we don't have to try every environment to make a decision. So you have an amazing capacity to simulate and to envisage outcomes of decisions and different scenarios and it's one of these huge evolutionary gifts that we have and so for me I was struggling with a major decision and it was taking me years to decide would I have a second child and I remember doing all the pros and cons all the whys list what would I do and I was so ensconced in my work and trying to be productive I wasn't like just taking time to actually think about how that decision might play out And then one day I just was on a walk with no phone, no, you know, anything kind of uh, to silence the chatter. And I simulated and thought about what it would be like if I didn't take that decision. So this is thinking about really, well, if I don't do this, what's life going to look like? And I actually felt really sad (laughs) thinking about my older son at Christmas time without a friend. And so it was more about trying to understand would I have regret trying to think of myself further down the track, trying to understand not just what the decision would look like, but what would life look like if I didn't. Do that, and so I think we have this huge luxury that we don't really think about because we're so in, you know caught up with social media and our day-to-day chores and all of these other things we've talked about today. But you can let your mind go to all of these places and actually confront some of the things that you might be grappling with. And it's a very easy thing for us to do. And you should use your daydreaming more and use mm. your capacity for simulation more. Very practical very tips
1: there. Um, <laughs> all right, let's uh, go to some questions. I'll go to the gentleman in the red over here first.
5: Thank you. Yes, So uh, the International Standards Organization publishes a book on risk management, or a standard on risk management, which I think uh, came from Australia, and New Zealand originally. But uh, it addresses the, the process of decision making, all of the inputs that have got to go into a decision. And when I first read it, I thought that this should be taught in schools. It's, uh, it's aimed essentially at organisations and governments and the, the really big decisions, but it can be used just as easily to make a decision about where you cross the road or how you can deal with the next pandemic. Are you aware of that international standard? And I thought uh, perhaps uh, you, you mentioned risk, uh, Damien, uh, that uh, risk can management. I, can I just quickly, just quickly ask you a question?
3: Um, if I wanted to cross the road and I used the ISO standards, how long would it take? <laughs> yeah. uh, about an
5: hour and a half at least. <laughs> hour hour half? Half. Yes. Okay. But it, it, it is a process of decision-making that we're, we're often not aware of. It, and it really surprised me that it has been standardised. Mm,
3: right. No. But at the, the end of the hour and a half, I might say, I'm not crossing that road, and I'm really confident yeah.
5: in that. <laughs> That's why yeah, it's saying exactly. at the very big... Wait, all the pros and cons. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am a, but it to, certainly to, helps with addressing the next <laughs>
4: pandemic. Well, th- th- I, I am aware of that. And um, it's funny, that a bunch of the sort of world of risk researchers, one of the things they say, not unlike what you're saying about philosophy, is that children need to be taught how to calculate risk mm-hmm. too and how to sort of break that cycle of making decisions from purely an emotional place, um, that there is a process that can sort of make you step back and, and walk through some exercises. And so it, it is something that... Um, it would probably would be beneficial. As, as as we've discussed, humans are not very good at dealing with risk or mm. making decisions about risk.
1: Thank you. Um, we'll go to gentleman over here.
5: Yeah, um, I was really interested in the way you were talking about uh, outrage without strategic action and then also this idea of like the mortar of interaction kind of moving us away from some of those heuristics we fall back on and how you can apply that to discourses like climate change where people so readily kind of, Fall back on what 's easy or things they don 't have to think about or their preconceived notions of you know climate change is real and it 's really important or climate change doesn 't exist or I shouldn 't have to think about it and how you might start to have a discourse that actually changes the way people think and act and interact with um, I guess a, a, a challenge like that
4: yeah i mean i 'll take this one maybe because one of the thoughts that um, that I I was thinking about, as someone, as a journalist, I read a lot about democracy these days, and and a lot of democracy theorists will tell you that what you need are these cross-cutting interactions, which, you know, I didn't really think about this at the time, but my experience of learning how to be a surf lifesaver was one of them, where you throw people together who have different points of view, but they're not actually focused on those differences and points of view, and so they're finding points of connection, they're basically learning charity um, through interaction, and that's one of the ways that you make society cohere. So, to use an example from another country, Norway uh, has first aid mandatory. Everyone in Norway has to learn first aid and so you've got 96% of adults in Norway who have been trained in first aid. And that training, I believe, makes it a stronger democracy and it makes it a country that's more able to deal with differences. Because you're dealing with people of a wide array of political spectrums who have a mission-driven approach. And so the other institutions that do this really well Um, surveys, and there's lots of research to show this, are militaries, because it's another institution that throws people together, and it's a mission-driven plan that has nothing to do with politics or differences. So, at least in the research that I've seen, that's one of the ways, and some of these really contentious, polarized issues, which I think a lot about as an American, sadly, um, I think that's one of the things that Americans don't do very well right now, that Australians, I do think, do better, and that all of us can learn from, is throwing yourself into those positions where your, 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 your perceptions and your biases and all of those things are being questioned in ways that are sometimes subtle, in ways that sort of make you open your mind in a different way because you're doing something together.
1: Tim, did you want
3: yeah. to add to that? Uh, yeah, look, that's really interesting. I, I mean, I would say with, with climate change, it's a very difficult problem because the scale is something that we are just not equipped to deal with as individuals. Uh, it's a systemic issue, it's not a global issue, so um, there are so many layers to it. It can exacerbate, there are a couple of other things that can trigger, like you can um, you know, sign up to do some green energy and you do one good deed and that makes you feel like you've done your job and then you just wash your hands and you kind of forget everything else. And there are organisations that try to co-opt that, talking about the individual responsibility of like your carbon footprint, um, which is kind of a bit crap because ultimately it's a systemic issue, not an individual issue. You could reduce your carbon footprint to be negative and it's not gonna make much difference. But how do you make systemic change? It's, it's incredibly difficult to do that. So you feel powerlessness. So the only thing that I can suggest is that we, ex, we extend at the bounds of our agency and our perception to the world that we can actually affect. And that's all you can really do. You can make your incremental step changes. You can try to influence things on a systemic level. Um, But we've also got to temper our expectations there and not take on too much guilt around this. Because also the narrative about individual responsibility for something like climate change triggers guilt. Guilt is something we want to run away from if we can. That can cripple us and we end up doing nothing and just kind of ignoring it as well. I don't think there's any easy answer to how to deal with a problem as big as climate change.
4: Actually, w- one more thing on that thought. There's, there's, a, there's a psychologist at Princeton named Elke Weber who's done a whole lot of studies about how climate change communication works. And in the 80s, she coined this term combine and conquer. And one of the things that she argues is that you have to sort of get out of that debate conflict cycle and get into a place where you're saying, okay, yes, and. Yes, don't use a plastic straw and do this as well. And so it starts to break down and that recognizes this recognition that you can't do it alone. No individual, no state, no company can do it alone. You actually need fucking everyone. And that's the end of the day. So how do you build towards fucking everyone? That's the goal. (laughs)
1: That should be the title of a (laughs) a panel someday. I love that
4: I can swear all the time in Australia and I use it whenever I can.
1: (laughs) 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 Love it, all right. Um, Let's keep going with questions. Hello. Uh, uh,
0: My name is uh, Ganesh Pala. Um, With the Modern Advancements in Neuroscience, and uh, all through maybe for a long time, heavy emphasis on IQ more than EQ. Uh, And today with more explorations, uh, it seems that EQ is becoming more and more important. That's what I think I heard from you. Uh, My question is, uh, is there something called, as we say for IQ, rationality and reasoning? Is there something called emotional rationality? And also, your emotions, can you recycle your emotions into your own desirable outcomes that an individual uh, can try? And if you do that, can it foster power of imagination?
2: Interesting. Lots Lots of different things there. I'll leave the rationality reasoning part to Tim, but from a neuroscience perspective, emotion colors everything that we do pretty much in our daily lives. And so, you know, it's very difficult for us to make big decisions without considering the effective or the emotional sort of uh, downstream effects. And so we'll make decisions when we're in, you know, a neutral state of mind, but then in a different type of emotional state, we might choose a completely different outcome. So it, it colors and clouds, even the way we encode information and the way we retrieve information and the way we sort of do this simulation when we're trying to think about possible outcomes of events so the interesting thing from this perspective is if you are trying to make changes and to think about the consequences of your actions that you might carry out in the future we tend to have this very strange um, positivity bias so we tend to think that we're going to be more successful and more that the outcomes will be more favorable than actually would bear out according to you know the reasonable sort of probabilities and so I guess that's where you need to sort of weigh up that we shouldn't be fully guided by emotion in when we're making really important decisions because we have a natural evolutionary sort of proclivity to imagine the good and obviously that makes sense otherwise you would never try to do anything because you would think that it was all um, futile. So I think there's a place for emotion, obviously, because we need to be guided by our moral compass, by our you know capacity to think about other people, to go beyond ourselves. But also, emotion doesn't always necessarily mean that we're going to choose the right thing because our emotions fall under these biases as well.
1: I might just leave that one there just because we're very nearly out of time and I would love to hear from at least one woman. Um, would you like to ask your question?
0: Um, yes, I'm not quite sure how to say this, but... Um I was wanting to talk from the basis of shame. So, for instance, you're talking about going out and changing perspective, Um, but what if you're the person who actually feels the shame, who is actually at the... um, um, ..you know, is experiencing all the implicit bias? Um, Because that puts you in a... um, Oh, it says an out group. And, right. um, you know, and I think we have a society that has a lot of out groups. It's certainly become a lot better over time. But I'd like to know your perspective on bringing the out groups more into the in groups.
2: Was that directed at anyone particular? No or...
0: one in particular, no.
2: Anyone want to take that? I'm, I mean, I could speak to some of the the idea behind this, I think. So shame is definitely an emotion that we experience as it's almost linked in with regret and it's sort of irrevocably tied to negative experiences, a lot of the time traumatic experiences. And so from an individual, sort of the cognitive neuroscience of that is very much bound about trying to understand how we can take the the crux of what's happened to the person and try and dampen down the negative emotions and the arousal that's associated with that. And so there's different um, cognitive and behavioral therapies now that are trying to work on, you know, reactivating the memories because memories are very malleable. They're open to being um, distorted, but also open to being sort of reconfigured. And so trying to enable people to reactivate memories of, you know, traumatic experiences, but then tempering or sort of dampening down the emotional connotations so that the person can actually still remember what's happened Mm -hmm. but get past those sort of debilitating feelings. How it's borne out in a more social context, I'm not sure, but I'm hoping my companions here can can (laughs) weigh in. Shame's
3: really interesting because shame's another example where our kind of moral psychology, our modern minds have co-opted fairly ancient uh, emotions. So um, shame is connected to disgust, uh, and disgust is another moral emotion, which is connected to the kind of physiological reaction of disgust. And emotions tend to be attractive or repulsive; they kind of reinforce and draw you towards the stimulus, or they push you away. Disgust is a recognition of an impurity that you want to be pushed away from, and we feel moral disgust towards people who we think are unrecoverable. So we get outrage, and when we think outrage, when we think they can be fixed. We hold the outrage, and when we get to a point where we think they cannot be fixed, we start to tip over into disgust. Mm. And that's where we just want to get them out of our world and destroy them. Shame is where we turn that disgust upon ourselves. So it's a different kind of thing to guilt, where guilt will be a recognition that I've breached some kind of social or moral norm, but it's, a, it's an attractive, it's a motivating thing. You feel bad, you want to do something, it motivates action. Disgust, self-disgust, or shame, Makes you just look at yourself and kind of want to get away from yourself, and it's quite debilitating. And not everything that evolution creates is functional or useful. There's a lot of it. I mean, you know, look at my my left knee is terrible, right? Um, warranty expired several years ago. Um, so, and there's the same thing with with uh, with shame. Sometimes shame can be useful if you're able to turn it into something that can direct action towards something positive. But if you get stuck in the shame spiral and you get stuck with the self disgust it can be quite debilitating and take that agency away from you. I don't know if that helps at all.
1: Thanks, that's a really interesting question. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Um, I want to thank everyone for asking a question, who did, um, but also our panellists. Damien Cave, Australia Bureau Chief for The New York Times, author of Into the Rip. Tim Dean, philosopher, writer and author of How We Became Human and Murren Irish, Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at the University of Sydney. Thank you all. Um, And once again, Damien and Tim will be signing their books in Bay 23. So thank you, everyone. Good night.
3: Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks, 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 Dana.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.